Today's episode of Scallion Pancake is brought to you by The Parking Spot. Affordable, stress-free airport parking is the simplest way to begin your next great adventure. Enjoy daily rates at Charlotte for as low as $5 a day. The Parking Spot is the best choice at Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Visit theparkingspot.com to reserve your spot today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 77 of the Stallion Pancake Podcast. I'm Jason Ackerman. And I'm Yvonne Ackerman. And I'm Chris Reed. Oh. Chris Reed in the studio from Piedmont Culinary wait, Guild wait, fame. Wait, wait, wait. Ba-ba-bum. Dun-da-da. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> Presenting. Presenting. <laughs> the illustrious. From the Guild of Piedmont. <laughs> Chris it Reed. is it is very um, British Piedmont Culinary Guild, right? Is yeah, it? <laughs> it's like uh, Dungeons and Dragonsy. Is it? <laughs> I guess it could be. I guess I guess I, we just hear Guild and we go crazy. So you're co-founder and current executive director of the Piedmont Culinary Guild. Yes. So tell us about that. So Piedmont Culinary Guild is a collection of chefs, farmers, artisan purveyors, um, different folks across the. Uh, food and beverage space, and across our food shed that are working together to preserve the flavors of the Piedmont. So bringing attention to local farms and the importance of sourcing uh, directly from farms and featuring those uh, flavors on your menu. So how many chefs do you have? Um, well, total in Charlotte right now, we have 271 members. So that's across all groupings. And then we have 32 in Winston-Salem, which is our triad sister guild. And then we just launched the triangle where we only have seven, but we just started there. So, um, And then this October, fingers crossed, we'll be going to Asheville. So, oh, that's cool. exciting. Yeah. So sister much guilds good food. all the way around the Queen City is the goal. Okay. So how do you... so? I know chefs can become a member, but how does a lay person like Yvonne and myself yeah. support so the, the cause? Pro membership is by invitation only and it's vetted. So you're invited or sponsored by an existing member and then you go through a vetting process um, that is a committee of um, current members. And the vetting is really focused on you know, how long have you been in the industry? What are you currently doing to be innovative in the space? Um, how do you participate in community um, to make sure that we're sort of bringing the best and the brightest forward in terms of culinary professionals? If you're a just general consumer, not necessarily in the industry, we have a different level of membership called Tastemakers, and the Tastemaker membership is open to anybody, um, but we only have um, space for 200. So right now we have 193. So oh. um, we only go up to 200, and the reason that we do that is it's just we're a very small organization. It's not really manageable to grow it in an unsustainable way right now. So uh, that public membership is $10 a month, and that is helping us to fund some of our programs with CMS, Novant, and some other partners that we have in the space right now. So so what are those tastemakers? What do they, um, do they get to go to events with that membership? Mm-hmm. So um, they receive a monthly newsletter that includes a write-up from a local farm as well as a recipe from a local chef, and they're invited to a monthly meetup. And for our monthly meetups, we go to different pro member businesses or farms so they can learn learn more about our members and uh, build their local food community. So it's really our member meetups are more of a thank you for their $10 donation a month that's helping us to keep moving forward with our mission. Well, you guys have some awesome events that we have been to. Um, we went to Farm to Fork in the Garden. 
last fall, and that was the that second was or third. First. That was that the was first. The first that was year. the first annual. Mm-hmm. It was so organized. Thank it was you. amazing. So it was at Daniel Stowe <laughs> Botanical Garden, and it's Danielle. <laughs> and which was great because I'd never been there either. And there were so how many chefs and not just chefs, there were like mixologists mm-hmm. and other vendors. How many people did you so have? So it was there? 25 tasting stations and each station was made up of a chef and a farmer. So chefs and farmers were paired together for the event um, to collaborate on the dish. And then we had four different bar areas and each bar had a vineyard, a brewery, a distillery and a non-alcoholic um beverage that's being produced locally. So it's all craft beverages. And then we had a maker's tent, which was all of our artisan purveyors. So like Duke Bread, Garnigal Jams, Your Mom's Donuts, um, all those guys were kind of um, situated in one space that people could walk through and learn more about their products. We found that because of the Your Mom's Donuts. We were, (laughs) wherever they are, I can, I have like a sense for it. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Courtney's a big big advocate of the Guild as well. So it was such a good event because... You just get to learn all about Charlotte and the different chefs that are going on and the different farms. It was definitely exceeded our expectations. And anyone could have, can buy a, t- a ticket to that for the one coming up this year yep. in the fall. So this year is um, October 7th. Did I say that right? Or October 6th? No, I lied. It's October 6th. Um, Sunday, October 6th. And so, yeah, that's open to the public. We've pre-sold 300 tickets. Which is crazy. Um, <laughs> so it'll double in size this year, but we'll keep... a approximately the same amount of tasting stations. There'll just be a lot more people and more um, activation areas where we can educate and teach people about the importance of local food. And it wasn't crowded at all. So, you, and that, that's a huge space. So I can it definitely see. It was a great see. day. Yeah. yeah. Oh it was gosh. a really fun day. Beautiful weather too. And it's sort of a blur for me, but it was, it definitely was a, a fun day. What's it like putting on an event like that? Like how far in advance did you start planning that? So, for that event, I'm actually in the process of con- connecting chefs and farmers now for our tasting stations this year. Uh, we're in process of um, trying to secure sponsors. So if anybody out there wants to sponsor, we're always looking for sponsors for events. Um, and so that that planning is already underway. So yeah, good as long as it takes to gestate a baby-ish. <laughs> is that good math or bad is, math? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what <laughs> what kind of species. creature you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it is like, an event like that is kind of like birthing a baby. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it feels like yeah. at the end. And then you have an event coming up in two weeks, um, mm-hmm. the symposium. Yep. So what's that all about? So the PCG Food and Beverage Symposium. This is our fourth year that we've been doing that, and it's really just a day of learning and growing as a community. Uh, we have hands-on um, classes, so some culinary classes. We have several business classes, and this year we're offering a third track, which is focused on wellness, especially on mental health, because we feel like there's a real need to draw attention to um, stress reduction and overall personal health in the industry and across, I think, every industry, but especially the culinary industry, because it's so stressful. And you know about that. So you're, let's talk about your background. So you went to culinary school. You have three culinary degrees. (laughs) So I went to culinary school at um, Colegio Gastronomico in Guadalajara, Mexico, and then um, went to Johnson & Wales, Charlotte for two degrees. So Which two? How does that work? Um, so this campus at the time, I don't know if they do now, but at the time that I was in school, they didn't offer a culinary arts um, BS. So you could only get an associate's in culinary arts. I think they've changed that since then. So I was only able to get an associate's degree in culinary arts. And then I stayed for the bachelor in science in um, hospitality management food and beverage management. So what was the degree you got from Guadalajara then? So I actually didn't finish my program down there. I was a few weeks out. I had a 
little bit of an accident there, so I had to end my program. Um, but that was just a general culinary certificate. Okay. So, yeah. So you felt like you just, you wanted to get, like, more experience, or was it more about, like, finishing the, de- the degree, or? Well, I went to Mexico um, originally not to go to school, but to take a year off of the books, um, so I had applied to Johnson & Wales, and it was too expensive for me to write a check, but I made too much money in L.A. to get any sort of um, assistance. So I decided to move out of country for a year, um, and Mexico was the place that I could afford to live, and um, that's what I did in order to reapply for financial aid. I bet Jason to likes that. the pathway the accountant to Johnson & Wales. <laughs> oh, I do like and, and Chris was an accountant y- yes, before. So that's what you were keeper. doing in we, LA. We, we should back up. So we okay, met at the Hello Sailor special event. Yes, Buxton Hall's Hello Sailor And she was sitting right across from us. And she was the star of the show. Oh, my sure. gosh. And, uh, you light up a room. People only usually say that about people after and they, they were die. Like, but for you, you get it <laughs> yeah. while you're alive. <laughs> like, seriously, you were just like, you're fun times. We were like, yeah, we're at the right end of this table. Yeah. Like Dick Clark, he was really great. Yeah. He's dead now. Um, <laughs> he really lit up a room. But yeah, but then she was talking about how she used to be an accountant. And then she's like, that's the most boring job. And there were like seven accountants, like right <laughs> near you. together. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> they all pushed up their glasses and their visors, yeah. pulled down their visor. I pulled it's down my visor job. and I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Job. It sucks. Yeah, I, I think, couldn't do it. I think that um, the idea of taking that path career-wise originally was sort of that recession-proof, you know, stable income lifestyle, but I found really quickly as a creative that that was not very satisfying, and so... I think it was about year three. Yeah, I really just make up the numbers. Stif- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's yeah, fun. it was hard. I mean, I don't. I, I, I guess it depends on what firm you work for. But the firm that I worked for in Los Angeles, I was sort of in a corner office, didn't have any client interface, and so it was lonely and isolating. And really, the only sound I heard all day was clicking of keyboard and then the air conditioning turning on and off so it was like people killing themselves trying to find a rhythm between the air conditioning turning off and the clicking of the keyboard was like my most creative part of my day so. okay tell the story about <laughs> after tax season when the when the partner would leave what oh you would god do. when oh when, yes. yes when the boss marilyn would leave um <laughs> melissa my at the time she was my assistant now she's my accountant so she actually has finished school and she moved to north carolina when i moved here and so she's now our accountant but um, Marilyn would leave and everybody would go on vacation and Melissa and I would just run the office while everyone was gone on the post-tax season, you know, uh, break. And so Melissa and I would spend our days photocopying um, parts of our body and then <laughs> metering them to each other. Um, and she would play the mother plucker in my office. I had these like big armchair chairs and she'd put those gigantic rubber bands that you use for files on them and she'd tune them and then she'd play the mother plucker. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So we had a lot of creativity. What just, about the Denny's though? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. We, would, we had um, the credit card for the whole week. So Mar- Marilyn would be just like, order whatever you want for lunch. And so we would, you know, go to different restaurants and basically order everything on the menu, bring it, bring it back to the office and spread it out over our beautiful <laughs> Two people. tables for two people and just take like <laughs> plastic like forks. And it yeah. was a buffet, yeah, with styrofoam boxes. It was absolutely disgusting, but it was it was fun. I can't believe you'd leave that job. It sounds yeah. like your boss went out of town just the right amount. Yeah, and- oh, man, it was it was really hard. That was a really hard um, a really hard thing to do for me. So it it um, got to the point that you know when you cry in the shower because you have to go to work that day, you know it's over. And um, that was pretty much it for me. Once I started crying in the morning because I had to go to work, I knew that I had to make a change. And so many people were like, Chris, you're such a great, you know, cook and such a great entertainer. You really need 
need to move towards culinary. And that's when I started looking at different degrees and what I needed to um, pursue that path. And Johnson and Wales seemed like a good path because my parents were living here and I was in LA and I needed somewhere that was affordable to go to culinary school living expense wise. And so this seemed like a good match. But then once I applied and they're like, oh yes, you're accepted. We need $27,000. I was like, oh, well, I can't write you And you cried in the that. shower again. And then I cried in the shower again, <laughs> but not for very long because I was like, hmm, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And, um, and Mexico just seemed, you know, like the perfect place I could afford to live there. And, um, and that was that was the plan. So I, I went there originally to get off the books tax-wise. And while I was there, I had to take um, language classes because I couldn't speak any of the language. Um, I learned a little bit in high school, and I have some Mexican in my family, but it wasn't something that we use conversationally. So um, I ended up in a language school where the instructor in like the second week was like, why are you here? And I said, well, I want to be a cook, and everybody in LA in the kitchen speaks Spanish, so I'm going to have to learn how to speak Spanish, and I also need to be somewhere for a year so I could reapply for student loan. And, um, and so she's like, oh, my brother owns the culinary school in Jalisco. And I was like, no kidding. So she took me over there and introduced him, me to him. And um, we made an agreement that I would come and, and clean labs and break down fish and meat and whatever needed to be done in exchange for culinary school. So I would go to language school in the morning, get on a bus and go to the culinary school in the afternoon, clean labs for three or four hours, and then take their evening program. So... And you were living on your own? In a, um, yeah. I, when I was in LA before I went to Mexico, I needed to save a little money. So I started working at night in a bar. So it was like, be the accountant during the day, put in pigtails and, you know, throw on some cute clothes and go work <laughs> in a bar at night. And um, there was this guy at the bar one night and he's like, what do you do? And I was like, I tend bar. He's like, you're lying. You're totally not a bartender. <laughs> And I was like, well, I'm an accountant during the day, but I'm saving money to go to Mexico. He's like, well, where are you going to go? I was like, I don't know. I just need to move to Mexico. He's like, I have family in Guadalajara. I was like, no kidding. And that was the family I ended up moving in with. No way. Yeah. Did you end up dating that guy too? It sounds nope. like, no, it no. wasn't going that way. Okay. No, no. He was just a super friendly guy. <laughs> nice. And he's like, yeah, I have family and I can totally hook you up with them and you'll have a safe place to be. And within three months, I was on a plane flying to Guadalajara. That's amazing. So, so what'd you learn in Mexico that helped you? What I learned in Mexico. culinary that you can talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the culinary education down there was solid. You know, you learn um, you learn differently than you learn in the states, and um, of course, their international program. How, how's was pretty, it different? Um, you know, they don't have the level of like food safety protocol that we do, and so they just deliver like half animals and throw them in the basement, and you're just like cutting up animals and prepping them out. So you go all the way from like butchery to a finished product on a plate, which you just don't really do that at school here. You take a butchery class, but it's not part of you know where you're going to take that animal, break it down, braise it, or stew it, or whatever you're going to do with it, and then do a presentation on a plate, you know, it's kind of like you take international class, you take butchery class, you take baking, you take patisserie, you take dining room, you know, where I felt like that program in Mexico was more sort of cohesive where you're doing everything kind of together um, in a day. It's not just a single um, class assignment. Grab so the speak. chicken, kill it, put yeah. it on the plate. <laughs> this is like a two hour process. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was um, pretty spectacular as well because a lot of the educators were in that international program were like from the Philippines and Japan and um, just from all over the world where I didn't see that level of diversity at Johnson and Wales that my experience was not that diverse. Um, there was a couple instructors that I had like from Germany, but you know, it was super, um, 
it was super diverse in Mexico, the, that program. So you, you got to see a lot of different technique and learn a lot about how people prepare food and how to incorporate seasoning and create flavor pro- profiles where it just felt a little bit, I don't know, more authentic. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, well, but they're certainly not afraid of flavor in Mexico. And then when you had all those other chefs too yeah. from around the world, like that's, yeah. you just got to learn everything about all the different yeah. flavor profiles. It, w- it was a great, it was a great program. I was sad that it ended early for me. I would have had, had loved to finish that up. So. Can you talk about what the accident was? Um, I was on my way to culinary school and at a bus stop and I get hit by a truck on Ugh. the street. So that kind of wow. Ended. Thanks for bringing that up, Yvonne. What a Damn. downner. I'm sorry. Dump, dump. <laughs> well, it's not a downer actually. Like I really am grateful for the experience. A lot of people, you know, say that all the time. Like, would you have changed your path if you knew that was going to happen to you in Mexico? And I'm like, no way. I mean, that totally defines who I am as a person and my level of gratitude for life. So, um, no, it was a it was a really tragic accident. So I ended up um, shattering my right hip and pelvis and um, actually died on the street there. So I was resuscitated there, spent a week in the hospital in Mexico and then a life flight back to Los Angeles. So So what happens when you die? uh, You travel. (laughs) You travel fast. (laughs) You're going somewhere fast, but you're not moving. It's very weird. So, um, yeah, so that, I mean, that whole experience, um, I think created a lot of, uh, gratitude and literally when I think about my culinary career now, I mean, I can't think of a lot of people that can say they broke their ass literally to become a <laughs> chef. So, but I can. Yes. And when people say they, they feel like they got hit by a bus, do you get mad? <laughs> Actually, it was like, uh, it was a couple of months after my surgery in LA and I had to go to a doctor and have an x-ray done and the x-ray tech like took the x-ray and he's on the other side of the wall and he's like, holy shit, did you get hit by a truck? And I'm like, actually, yes, that's exactly what happened. He's like, oh my God, I'm just kidding. I was like, well, I'm not, but that's okay. Like, yeah, when people say, when people say that and they know me, they're like, I'm sorry, Chris, that was inappropriate. It's like, no, it's fine. Like, it's just, you don't know what it feels like to get hit by a truck, but I can assure you it's not pleasant. Yeah. yeah. It's as bad. It's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. So then you pretty soon after that went, came here to Charlotte. Well, um, my recovery was like a year. So it was like four months in a wheelchair and like a lot of rehabilitation. And at the time I wasn't insured. So when I was living in Mexico, I didn't have insurance. So when I came back to the States, I didn't have insurance. So there wasn't a path for like proper PT. And so I was fortunate that I had before I left to go to Mexico, a, a huge community of wellness people around me. I lived in Venice. We talked about that at dinner when we were at- So lived in a commune. I lived in a commune in Venice. And so from there, I knew a lot of you know yoga instructors and practitioners um, who basically rehabilitated me. And without them, there's no way that I'd be walking right now. So even my um, orthopedic that did the surgery told me that I would never walk again without a limp or without a cane. And so I was really fortunate to have the people around me that I did that provided that level of um, rehabilitation. So that's how you went into the commune during your recovery period? No, I was in the commune before I went to Mexico. So those were all friends of mine. Yeah. So when I got back and they had heard what had happened, I mean, they just, the community just came together and uh, really supported me during that time. So, um, Greg Balcom, who was one of my Tai Chi masters and uh, yoga instructor, was with me almost every day. He came and carried me down the stairs of the apartment that I lived in and got me in the pool and did a lot of like work in the pool with me um, until I could walk up the stairs of the pool and walk out of the pool without my walker a crutch. So um, he was a pretty instrumental part of my recovery. So a lot, a lot of gratitude for that guy. So That's awesome. That's I think in another reason, I think that wellness is so important and we forget it in the culinary world. You know, now that it's been several years since my accident, that was in 2004, you know, I'm, I've been lucky to 
be walking all this time without a lot of problem, but I suffer with a lot of pain, obviously. So, you know, I think that people in this industry, this, this, the cooking aspect is one thing. I mean, imagine being in a field bent over all day long. I mean, it just beats the shit out of your body. And so when you already have existing pain points and you're on your feet on concrete or bent over in a field, I just feel a real strong need to encourage people to at least talk about wellness as part of this industry and not to, I mean, we really need to demystify that. (laughs) Like it's okay to take care of yourself. And um, I think a lot of times people sort of feel like there's a weakness there. If you need to have self-care or be a participant in yoga as a chef, you know, it's kind of like a foo-foo kind of thing for chefs. There are a lot of tough guys and you're like, yeah. Well, not just guys, women too. (laughs) I mean, and women like even more so because women, I mean, as my experience, uh, you know, it's not easy to come up into a leadership position in a kitchen as a woman. And so, yeah, there's definitely this tough guy mentality even for women, you know. So there's a real need that's deep within my heart to try to get people to come towards a better place with health and wellness. So at the symposium, you'd be focusing on yoga, Tai Chi? No, we don't or, have any no. um, actual yoga classes. It's more around like stress management and talking about um, different techniques to reduce stress because that's a big thing, right, is the, is the mental health aspect of it. If you're in a good mental space, it's easier to sit quietly <laughs> and do yoga, but you're going to have a hard time like getting there if your brain is going a thousand miles a minute and, you know, it's you need to sort of relax the brain first. And so we're really talking a lot about... Um, about mental health at the at the symposium, but we do have practitioners that are yoga instructors and such that will be talking about those techniques. Um, but we're not doing any yoga classes or tai chi classes at the symposium. So we don't want to go u- too ubu jibi for people. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. <laughs> want it to be approachable. So yeah, yeah, first year we're gonna try it out, see what happens. I think that's a great idea. That's why I can't do yoga because of that. Like I can't because my Quiet mind just races, and I'm like I can't be sitting here still. This isn't even a workout. <laughs> yeah, I'm. You know, it's funny. I was um, I've been talking a lot with a farmer who's now retired and we've become really really good friends over the last year Uh, Michelle Lamb who used to have Bosky Acres so one of the best goat cheeses that you could possibly imagine everybody misses Michelle's cheese but uh, Michelle has been like a huge force in my life recently and reminding me to slow it down and quiet it down and um, sort of have time for reflection and she sent me a book recently that I've been reading that's um, and, and I'm not religious in any sense of the word but um, the book is called Sabbath, and it's about how culturally we've moved away from um, from rest. And to rest now, there's almost like a guilt that comes along with taking time or resting. Um, so again, like just this, it's very important to kind of overcome this as a culture, and especially in the industry, because I think it drives a lot of the. I think the mental health drives the addiction problems, and the addiction problems drive the physical manifestation of illness and injury, (laughs) you know? So I think it all starts in the mind, but I'm so grateful for Michelle and her influence because that's been, that's been a big impact for me. Well, I was wondering like how you juggled everything. So you're, you know, you have this role with Piedmont Culinary Guild. You have a, like a preteen or is she a teenager? She's going to be 13 next month. Okay. That's a really challenging age. (laughs) No, you know, I try to keep it cool right now. I loaded back the cars down the driveway today so I could sweep off the driveway. So, you know, it's like trying to like, it's, it's trying to find the space to recognize her in her young adulthood and um, also manage the attitude that comes along with the need for independence and this also sort of look at me time in a young girl's life, you know? So no, she doesn't hate me yet. 
There's moments that she hates me, but we're not we're not quite there. We manage that pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> she's pretty cool. So yeah, between Lily and uh, I mean, obviously that's a big part of my life, and I left my chef career really to focus on my daughter. You know, she came up in the first couple of years of her life without a mom, and my husband being a restaurant widow. So, um, you know, I was working 12 to 14 hours a day, and even on my days off, you know, you're. Um, you're always on, you know, your phone is on and people are reaching out to you trying to solve problems, resolve situations, whatever the case may be. And so um, Lily was not, uh, uh, was not a victim of the restaurant industry because I think I was able to get out soon enough, but she became aware of it uh, around like seven and she realized we weren't doing holidays on holidays anymore, you know? So I was able to hide that from her in the early part of her life, that Christmas wasn't on Christmas and Thanksgiving wasn't on Thanksgiving and Easter wasn't on Easter. And, you know, we just moved the holidays around to suit my schedule kind of thing. And one morning and I was... thought about becoming Jewish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't have my, many. My simplify things. <laughs> but I was getting ready for Mother's Day. Now y'all celebrate Mother's Day. You know, it's a yes, Hallmark yes. holiday. I have, so. two, I have two dads. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's cool too. Um, and so we... Um, I was getting ready for Mother's Day, went to the uh, laundry room to iron my coat and she came in. It was like 5.30 in the morning and she's like, mom, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm ironing my coat. I'm going to work. And she's like, it's Mother's Day. I'm making you breakfast in bed. And I was like, oh shit, she knows. Like it's, she's aware of it. Because she's at school now the and they're gig, all telling The her. gig's up. <laughs> yeah. you know? And it was that, um, it, I left my chef job that November. So it took me several months to transition out, but um, I knew once she knew it was over, you know, and I wouldn't be able to hide that anymore. And she'd become resentful over time if I didn't make a change. So, so you were at Southminster then? I was at Southminster as a chef. Yeah, the executive chef there. Okay, so let's back up. So you graduate. So you go to Johnson Wells, you yep. graduate. What do yeah. you do after that? Um, so, you know, the, the economy had just tanked when I left school. So I had a little catering business that I lost um, the year before I graduated. Um, I did healthy gourmet sandwiches that I delivered to coffee shops and the company grew and it was a little sustainable business and it was great because it gave me flexibility with my schedule and with Lily and work and school balance was great. Um, and then in August, 2008, you know, that's when things started to fall down. And I, I don't think people realize that small business owners feel that impact first. Um, but all of a sudden people stopped buying coffee in the morning and that meant they weren't buying sandwiches. And so I went from like 18 clients to three within a month and I just couldn't recover. So once I closed my business, I was not able to secure a job because the economy was complete shit. Um, but I'm stir crazy if I'm sitting still. So I went to Hope Haven, which is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. And I was like, I just need to be busy. Can I come and cook here? And they were like, yeah, you can come and make the soup every day. So I came every day and made the soup. And one day that I was there, I parked in the back and I saw this big greenhouse. And I was like, what are you doing with that greenhouse? And they were like, it's a storage facility. Like we lost our grant funding. And, you know, we used to have a, a maintenance program that involved landscape um, education for our residents so that they could find employment in that industry, but we don't have the grant anymore. So we just use a space for storage. And I was like, well, can I grow food in there? And they're like, well, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, I'm going to feed all these sick people, you know, like all these fucking addicts that you're dealing with that you're feeding crap food to. Now, not to speak that 
negatively about their food. They honestly do a great job, but there's not a lot of fresh food um, when you're dealing with certain institutions. um, And certainly there's a need for fresh food. That's what you're going to digest the easiest and it's best for your body. So, um, so they were like, yeah, sure. Grow some food in the greenhouse. And so I called some farmer friends. I was like, I need soil and pots and seeds. And, um, and they all came to my aid. And that first year we grew like 2000 tomato plants in the greenhouse. And I sold them all for $2 a piece to at different like farmer's markets and events around town, which helped us to fund putting in the raised beds and like the water. Well, I wrote a small grant for the water system there. And so we got this garden up and going, but it was basically two years from 2008 to 2010 that I really couldn't find steady employment after the economy cr- you know, crashed. But that was my safe haven. I could show up at Hope Haven every day and I had a project, I had some work to do and it was making an impact. And um, and it was also just uh, so, solely satisfying, you know, um, being out there in the garden and, and working with people that were, rem- were also remembering real food. Um, I was out there one day and, and this lady came out with a bowl and she's like, oh, they sent me out here to help you. And I said, cool, go over there and pick some snap peas. I tell you this story when we're mm-hmm. at Bucks and Hall or at the Bucks and Dinner. So she uh, went over the fence and she's looking at the fence and she's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you want me to do. And I was like, I want you to pick the snap peas, you know, but you got to bend down, crouch down and look behind the leaves. They're hanging behind the leaves. And she's like, oh, wow. You know, it's like a really magical moment for her. And she picks one and I said, eat it. And she said, oh, it's not cooked. And I said, that's okay. We don't spray anything in the garden. It's totally safe to eat it. And she bit into it and it was like this... um this weird sort of like moment. I don't know if you saw that movie Ratatouille, that little. Animated. Oh yeah, of course. Yes. And you know, when the food critic like falls back in the vortex of his childhood, when he eats the yeah. Ratatouille. Oh. So like this happens to her, right? So she eats this net, this like this sweet pea and then she like falls, like you just see her leave, you know? And when she comes back, she starts crying and she said, Oh my God, my grandmother grew these. Like she remembered this food memory, like before anything happened that was wrong in her life. And she ends up at this facility. She remembers this moment of pure, and it has to do with food, you know, and it was just like, I mean, I knew that's what I wanted to do forever. You know, I just want to bring people to real food. Like food is, is love. And that food right is there love. is like, who needs that more than someone who's trying to get back that's to right. like who they are and find themselves right. and yeah, like feeding them, you know, packaged or processed food, processed food. like that. Yeah. I mean, that's what's affordable in a lot of, yeah. um, a lot of cases and that's what they end up eating. And, you know, it's, it's substance, it's, it's calories, you know, but I don't know that it speaks to your soul, you know, and I think that's important as part of healing for whether it's an emotional problem or an addiction issue or a physical issue or whatever it is, you need real authentic food for your body to recognize that as healing. Um, so anyways, I was at Hope Haven for a couple of years working in that garden and, um, at the time was meeting a lot of people around the uh, community garden space and the local food movement and ended up at a lot of different roundtable discussions. And I, I happened to be invited one to one at, um, at the Ritz Carlton and, and went there and it was about sustainable packaging. So they have all these different vendors coming in with sustainable packaging, passing them around the table. And then all these like, um, people from the buying community, different hotels and different restaurant groups were all at the table looking at the packaging, but you could tell that nobody really knew what the hell they were looking at. You know, they're like, oh, this is cool. Like, look at how it clasps. But they weren't actually looking at the materials, what was recyclable about the material, what was compostable, whatever. And so I showed up in like a hippie skirt with a paintbrush in my hair and a rucksack with a Nalgene hanging off of it. And they're all wearing like suits with these big like leather <laughs> binders, you know. And like I pull a little notepad out of my purse and I start writing some notes and you see them all open their big leather binder, poof, you know, on the table. And they start writing notes too. And so it comes to the end. And, and the facilitator was like, does anybody have any questions or comments? And 
I'm like waiting for this entire boardroom to say something and like nobody has a question, you know? And so I was like, actually, yeah, I I do. I have like at least 10. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, hey, so you're using this compostable product, but there's no place in the waste stream in Mecklenburg County for compost products. So like, even though it's going to the dump, it doesn't really make it compostable. People don't understand that, you know? There's like a whole process to composting. It's not just like putting it in the landfill. Is it better than a plastic? Yeah, of course it is. But um, I was like, can you address that? And so the guy starts talking. I was like, okay, cool, cool. So where where do you actually grow the corn for this? He's like, oh yeah, we, it's an American product. And I was like, oh, so you manufacture it in America too? He's like, oh no, no, we, we ship it to China and they, we ship the corn to China and they process it and they make the compostable product and then they send it back to us. I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And I'm like looking around That's the table. That's very sustainable. Yeah, I'm like looking around the table like, does yeah. anybody get this? Yeah. Is anybody listening to what is happening here? And then, you know, plastic products that they had passed around that weren't even plastics that were recycled in our waste stream, you know? So anyways, I, I was like, okay, that was really informative. What a waste of my fucking time. And I stood up to leave <laughs> and um, Salem Super walked over to me and he's like, who are you? And I was like, Chris Reed. And he's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a chef. He's like, do you want to be my chef? And I was like, I don't know. Where do you work? Well, he tells me about Southminster. I was like, oh no, no, no. I'm not interested in institutional cooking environments. It's like, like a retirement home. It's a, yeah, it's a retirement community. community. It's a very vibrant retirement They don't even community. call it that. I saw yeah. it's like a life community That's right. or something. Right. Continue, yeah. continue, continue care reti- uh, yeah. com- retirement community. So um, continue care, meaning that they, you know, a lot of the people that live there, the majority of them actually are still driving and, to- you know, they're independent. They just happen to have a little apartment there and it just makes their life a little easier to have some help with cleaning or cooking or whatever they need. Um, and friends. And friends. I think that's the biggest a community, thing about that. Right. Yeah. And then sort of the continued care part is, you know, people do end up going through the process into hospice there. So it's a really beautiful community. And I went to see it and I told him, you know, really, this isn't for me. I'm sorry. But he just wouldn't let up. And he called me and called me and called me. And finally, I was like, okay, I'll give it a whirl. Um, and so I went into Southminster in 2010. And within a year, I had moved the program from 80% frozen to 80% fresh food and then started incorporating local farms. Um, and then the next year started the garden. And the first year, I think we did 1,200 pounds out of the garden of produce, uh, which was also a way of like bringing community around food and remembering food. And, you know, these people would come into the garden and eat these tomatoes and be like, oh my God, I haven't tasted a tomato like this since I was a kid. You know, there's just nothing more satisfying than that snap pea in the garden or that tomato that somebody eats and the juices are dripping down their face. And you're just like bringing them back to the memory of wellness, you know? Tomatoes, especially. I feel like it- my age even I remember I can't get tomatoes like I got when I was a kid so I know that like I mean tomatoes just suck <laughs> from general. the grocery store yeah but even like carrots you know yeah, like, I, like I was pickling not... carrots today I'm like you once you have like a local carrot like the minerality of that carrot is so special you can't eat a commodity carrot anymore it's a different thing it just, it's a yeah different... like texturally it's wrong yeah. flavor wise it's wrong so once you eat fresh food and you acquire like that taste for it, it's really hard to move away from it. Um, I I know that it would be really hard for me to go to like a packaged food diet. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive. (laughs) And my family would protest. So you're cooking at home for your family all the time then? Yeah, we cook almost every night. I mean, on the weekends we go out a little bit. Yesterday we went to the the yolk for breakfast after the farmer's market. Love Greg Collier. So exciting! Um, what a week for him. I know, right? We're Congratulations on the he left us. James. Be- he got the James Beard nomination for Best Chef Southeast. Yeah. So super excited for Greg Collier. He's also on the board for Piedmont Culinary Guild. So was it crowded there yesterday? Yolk? It was. Yolk? It was. Are like, it was very check crowded. That out in yeah. case we haven't. Yeah. So we eat out on the weekends, but you know, in general, my husband makes bread every week, and 
you know, we make food from scratch. So we have chickens, we have a garden, not much growing in the garden at the moment. And we had a dead chicken this morning. Ooh. Oh, God. Raccoon. Why? Raccoon. A raccoon can kill a chicken? Oh, they, yeah. They just go after them? <laughs> yeah. Why? I mean, they eat them or did he? Um, they don't eat all of them, which is what's so disheartening about it. You know, yeah. they like kill them and take they their head the and then they're done. Yeah, they're just, exactly. So what can you do with the rest of that chicken? Anything? Nope. Like, can't really. No, just gets buried in the garden for compost. Oh, man. Yeah, it just gets composted in the in the soil. So you couldn't stay at so Southminster. That's when you left to stay home with Lily more. No, like, so I left no. Southminster um, for a job with what now is called the Good Kitchen. It was Mod Paleo, which is a meal delivery program yes. um, based around real food. But the hours were more approachable. It was a Monday through Friday job, daytime hours, and I I went in there as the director of operation to help them move their system from like a. a a, a local business to a national business. So to go through their HACCP certification and all of their uh, process and procedure to allow them to ship their product nationally. So I was there for a couple of years and then um, to further my ability to take care of Lily, she changed, changed schools and needed a ride to and from school. So I needed a little bit more flexibility. Um, so I left and started a HACCP consulting business. So I still have um, that business with Michelle Graham, who's my partner. Um, so it's I do the HACCP business. I do Piedmont Culinary Guild. I do event planning for CEFs and CFSA. Um, and then I also work for Gumbo Marketing, which represents different culinary brands. So I juggle a few things. Just that's, a few. So my briefcase <laughs> is that big. People are like, why do you carry that big bag? It's like, I have like six jobs. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be like a lamp coming out of there. Pretty, like Mary pretty soon it's going to be like a little roll, one of those little <laughs> yes. roll carts, you know, like everywhere I go. Yeah. So. So how did you start? Piedmont Culinary going? So in 2011, uh, when I was at Southminster, I had uh, become friends with Luca Anziata, who at the time was at Passionate Bistro, which became Luca's yes. Modern Italian Kitchen. Um, that was in Fort Mill. In that the was in Fort Mill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the old brothel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so him and Jessica became good friends and Luca had been struggling for, you know, not being able to provide full-time hours to some employees, but needing the assistance. And I had a lot of staff that was working full-time I couldn't give overtime to, but wanted Main Street experience. And so we started sharing some labor pool and then also some purveyor pool. And we realized like, if we're doing this and it works, like there must be an, a bigger audience of chefs that could benefit from this. Like let's pull the community together and see how we can build collaboration um, or a platform for collaboration. And so Kat Carter at the time, she started Edible Charlotte, um, Kat Carter and, and Luke and myself sat down and those are the three founders. So we sort of figured out who are we going to invite to the table? How are we going to do this whole thing? How are we going to structure it? Um, and had that first meeting at Passionate in, in 2011. And um, actually it was 2012 when we did the meeting. It was March 2012. So we're coming up on the anniversary right now. Um, and, uh, and from there it just grew. So originally it was just sort of a club that operated under, at the time, the Slow Food chapter under their 501. Um, and then we were able to um, develop and establish our own 501. Are so. Kat and Luca still a part of, like, I mean, as far as the day Luca's a member, not okay. day-to-day, yeah. yeah. I mean, Luca's a member and certainly has been a huge supporter and, I mean, anything that I ever need, Luca's always right there for me. And, you know, Kat has continued to be a great voice of reason and counsel um, as we've moved through, you know, from the, the sort of like the club to the actual nonprofit um, space. So, um, but neither one are involved in day-to-day operation anymore, so... Where is your space for that? Like In your... my upstairs office <laughs> at home. 
Is it so, really? I didn't yeah. know if it was at, like at like CPCC because I know you no, do a lot of events. We do. Philip yeah, we don't have every... brick and mortar. I mean, my dream okay. at some point is to have brick and mortar. My dream at some point is to have the Queen City House where we have dinners and activities oh, and cooking. Yeah, how great! I would love that. that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I've, I've been looking for space for a long time. You know, it's just harder and harder to find affordable space at this point. We really would need like a donor to come to the table. Give just you, saying, if you're a donor, space. yes. <laughs> if you're a sponsor and you want to give us a piece of property for a dollar a year, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, so. So we we are looking for, and we have been, you know, talking about that for a long time. But we do need brick and mortar. We do want brick and mortar that we can have um, guest chefs cook with our ingredients. So allow chefs from come in to come in all around from around the country or even the world, and let them just cook with our ingredients. You know, again, it's all about the flavors of the Piedmont and how do we create this. Um, space as a culinary destination like the Piedmont of Italy? How do we become known for the unique um, experiences that you can have here, whether it's from a vegetable or all the way to a craft beverage? You know, we really have it all in the Piedmont. People don't realize it's a very special place, you know, to be in the country. Um, And I really feel like Charlotte sort of on its way and has been for a while to become sort of the epicenter of the Southeast in terms of culinary. So we're pushing for that. And I think the Queen City House would be something that would take it to that next level. So, um, I you know, I love that. I love that idea. Okay. I know. Yeah. So we need to find, if you know somebody, if anybody knows anybody, Jason might, um, you know, we, we need, <laughs> we would, we would need like 1500 square feet at least. So we, we yeah, yeah we've talked, big. yeah, we've talked roughly about, you know, different ways that we could create revenue stream there. And, you know, there's no strategic plan on the books from the board standpoint right now. We have way too many things going on to focus on that. Um, but it's definitely out there. It's still hanging over. Like this is something that eventually we're going to have to really move towards. So, um, but the, the board right now is more focused on, you know, building better infrastructure for our nonprofit. And, you know, they're a very active board. They're, they're all very smart people, um, whether they're on the culinary side of the industry or not. We have a lot of, um, high level participation at the board level. So right now it's all about building internal communication, external communication, building, you know, more sustainable structure for the future, um, including paid staff and, um, more revenue stream. So we, we aren't grant funded. We've never had a grant, um, come into our possession. So we're really not, um, we haven't built our organization based on money's coming from state or federal dollars. We've built it based on the fact that if you're not supporting it, maybe it shouldn't exist. So if it's a community nonprofit, then the community doesn't come forward and support it, then it shouldn't be a thing. (laughs) Yeah. If the people want it, it will... Right. I I don't have, I don't have like founder syndrome there. You know, I feel very strongly about like if the community is not supporting it through membership, then we cease to exist. And that's, that's just the reality of it, you know? So, so far that's not been a problem. Um, So far we've been able to expand into other markets. So I'm hopeful for the future right now that this will continue to be an upward track and maybe someday I'll have one job and it'll just be to be the the executive director of the nonprofit. I'm sure you'd like to just have one job at this point. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Okay, talk about the Piedmont region. What are what are like the best ingredients that we have that maybe people so, don't know about? Oh, or there's so many great ingredients. I don't know that there's a best ingredient. You know, I think that it's more about innovation of ingredients that are happening here. You know, we have like saffron production going on here. We have caviar production going on here. Um, we have truffles finally happening here. We have a lot of ingredients that are up and coming. Um, are they originally from this area? No, but it's about the innovation of the space and the microclimate that we're in and really the accessibility of that 
that environment that makes it possible for us to do just an endless amount of stuff here. So um, ingredients, when I think about the Piedmont though, you know, being from Los Angeles, um, the things that I miss about living in LA are like citrus. I'm looking at your lemons the whole time I've been sitting here, those little lemons right there. Oh, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> They're not real. I, I know. Those are from Ikea. <laughs> it's okay. But like, I'm looking at those and that's like something that I really miss about living in Southern California. Like a really is, perfect looking lemon. Yeah. I mean, you can eat lemons there, you know, they're not like bitter. They're really good. Like lemons and like grapefruit and too. yeah, oh. limes, avocados, blueberries, strawberries. Mm-hmm. There's just certain things in Southern California that are like, when I go there, I consume a lot of that. Um, because you can't find those ingredients like that so here. So the berries and too, not really here? They're just different. Yeah. They're just not, different. Not the yeah. Same. And so here, when I think about if I were ever to go back to Los Angeles and I would come back here for a trip, like what would I want to eat? I yeah. would want to eat greens. Like I think our greens are delicious, you know? So our greens, our pasture-raised proteins are amazing. Um, you know, obviously our sweet potato production is is huge and so many varieties of sweet potatoes grown in this region at this point. So uh, tomatoes, another great one, you know, it's, uh, we, we have a lot of diversity in our food shed. So I don't think it's one ingredient or two ingredient. I think that it's a lot of cool ingredients and it's also a lot of cool craftspeople using those ingredients. So whether that's like Jamie Swafford making shrubs or, you know, free range making a beer or, you know, the beautiful wineries that we now have on the scene, you know, we just have a lot of really cool opportunity to experience a lot of different flavors. So it's not, it's not just one, you know? So what is, what would you say, like, what's the coolest thing happening in food right now in Charlotte? And that is like such a huge question, I know, but like, you know, or maybe one, you know, a few, but like, it could be chef wise, it could be something that, you know, a, a farmer's doing. Yeah. I think that's something that's really cool that's happening and it's happened really quickly. That's, and it's sort of exciting to see it. I don't know where it's going to go right now, but I'm really excited about hemp production. Um, the hemp and industry is really starting to blossom. Um, there's a lot of need for uh, additional infrastructure to really take advantage of that as a crop. So we need a lot of uh, processing centers and some way to facilitate those products and you know push them through a diverse you know revenue stream for anybody. So whether it's CBD oil or using the stocks for fabrics or building materials or whatever it is, there's just a huge potential there. So um, I think the hemp industry is the most exciting thing that I'm seeing right now. Um, in addition to that, I would say urba, the urban agri- um, agriculture that's sort of happening at this point around growing inside. So like Hiram at Urban Gourmet Mushrooms or, you know, Queen City Hemp doing the hemp inside or, you know, we just have a lot of cool um, growing inside of buildings at this point, which I think is really awesome. So I would say those are the two things that I'm, I'm most excited about. I see a lot of potential there for, for the Queen City right now. That's exciting. Yeah. And the James Beard, I mean, wasn't that the first time we've had three Three. It's pretty mad. Well, it's two chefs in a restaurant, right? I mean, Paul Verica, I'm, when I I know that he w- was I'm sure really hoping for that nomination for best chef Southeast, and I know that when I looked at the list, I was looking for his name on that list too. Um, but he received the nomination for best new restaurant Southeast, uh, which is still 
super awesome. I don't think that he's sad about it. So yeah. <laughs> um, that's amazing. And then um, Chef Joe Kindred and, and Chef Greg Collier with their nominations for Best Chef Southeast. So yeah, there's not been three nominations. This is a huge this is a huge opportunity for Charlotte. And it's yeah. really starting to put us on the map in a way that we haven't been before. I feel like we've often been been sort of that redheaded stepchild to Asheville and Charleston and even Raleigh. Um, but I think that people are paying attention finally to what we're the is blonde here. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're something, you know, we're something. And when I think about when we first started the guild, there was no continu- continuity in our community at all. There was no collaboration, very little collaboration, you know? Um, and I, I think with PCG being in place now, we could never take credit for anything, honestly, but I don't think that we would be where we're at as a culinary community had we not gathered gathered together, you know, and really created this idea of all ships rise and pushing each other further and harder. I don't think that we would be where we are as a culinary community or receiving the recognition that we are finally as a culinary community. Um, but yeah, that's a, certainly a very exciting thing that's happening in Charlotte as well. So, you know, fingers crossed and knock on wood that we're going to the next, the next round in March, yeah, you know, we'll later March. Well, yeah. we have Kristen Weil coming on the podcast next Sunday. Oh, cool. I didn't read this, but she had, it was in her newsletter. Like it was like why she doesn't think that, um, any of the three will win. I don't know. I didn't get a chance to read the whole article. And so I'm really curious to ask her that. Cause mm-hmm. I'm like, what, why? I wonder mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you know, we're not well, just being in this first round is a big deal. And so yeah, even sure. if we don't it's take one home on. yet, you know, if, if we don't bring one home for Charlotte, it's okay. I mean, that's a big, that's a big move movement forward for us as a, as a community, you know? So I'm, I'm very excited about where we are with that. And I'm excited that they're all PCG members. <laughs> yes. And and like, yeah, you really fostered this, like it's, it could very easily be competitive and I don't ever feel that way. Well, like, it's not the chefs are not like, it's not cutthroat. It doesn't seem. Absolutely not. And you know, chefs have t- said that before that have come into this community. Wow. I've never been in a community where people are really friends. Um, but again, like I just feel like while there were pockets of, culinarians that were friends before PCG, once PCG came on the scene and we created a space for everyone to come together. Um, that's just not part of the culture here, you know, it's definitely not. So yeah, we're, we're excited for, for everybody that's on that James Beard list, but certainly the three of, uh, the three PCG members and two of them are board members, Paul Verica and Greg Collier are both board members of the guild. So yeah. So when you guys are going out to eat, when you're not going to the Yolk, where else are you going? Oh, um, that's hard. You know, it always comes off as like favoritism, you know, (laughs) so I have to be really careful. Um, we don't eat out that much. And so when we do eat out, you know, it's, um, usually for a special occasion or, you know, we were at the flower shop last week for Mm. my husband's birthday. I love Trey. He does a great job. And then we went to 300 East that night for dessert. You know, Lainey um, just became the, uh, oh, yeah. the we pastry had chef Blade there. We last week. Oh, cool. Ashley's a good friend. Yeah. And so... Um, so did you have the Samoa dessert then? I did. Oh. So we had that too. Oh yeah. my gosh. Amazing. So good. Yeah. She's really embracing her role. I'll tell you what. I'm very excited for her. She's doing, she's doing good stuff. Um, so I would say that I, I definitely try to stay within the PCG membership. So yes. we have a member map that's on our website that people can access. Cool. We're currently working on a really comprehensive local food directory in partnership with Rivendale Farms and Ceph's. Um, and so that's rolling out, like hopefully at the symposium is what our hope is right now. But it's a, it's a, 
a map that you can kind of layer in if you're looking for distilleries or you're looking for restaurants or you're looking for farmer's markets. And so we're really trying to create a more comprehensive directory for the public that's looking to source authentic ingredients from local farms because there's a lot of places out there that will say, oh, local, and they use all these words and it's very, you know, it's very, people are very misguided. Like the world's local. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> to some people. Right. Or like, it's organic. Everything's organic, actually. Like, yes, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. chemically speaking. Right. Everything has carbon. Organic. So, like, you could say it's organic because technically everything is organic. But, yes. anyways, yeah. So, what are the other events around town that you think are people should know about that aren't just the P? The PCG events, Um, you know, there are so many events at this point. And again, you can go to our calendar because a lot of our members have events. And on our website, we have a calendar that has all of our members' events that they're posting. Um, Kristen Weil did a great dinner recently at um, Stoke, uh, really trying to address the concept of off-species or off-cut meats to try to get off this whole cow, pick, uh, cow chicken, pig train, uh, really try to encourage people to try other things, not just like a steak or a chicken thigh, but look at different breeds of animals. Um, so she did a great job by doing that dinner because I think it creates an opportunity for a conversation at least and a change in the narrative about what we eat and how we eat it. Um, so Kristen's, I'm sure, going to be putting out a lot of really good quality events um, you know, I think that CP does a good job too. They just had their event swirl on Friday night, which was a great culinary event and a fundraiser. I'm always looking for events that serve like a bigger cause or picture that are addressing an issue, not just like come party, um, you know, <laughs> Drink <there's>, wine, <laughs> right, right. Like farm to four picnic, you know, the money that we raise from that, we have two $3,500 scholarships that we're in the process of, or grants that we're in the process of gifting to PCG farm. So if you haven't voted for a farm, have you seen that Mm-mm, on our no. website? Yeah. So you can vote for a PCG farm right now. Go to our Facebook page and you'll see it posted there and you can follow the link and you can look at like 11 different applicant videos and you can choose the farm that you think that should get this grant. But that was the money that we raised from Farm to Fork Picnic. And so I feel like if you're doing events in the culinary space, you certainly need to be serving the culinary community or it needs to be some of that proceed needs to go back to the community that's breaking their back to create your event for you. Um, I'm, I'm a little off put by events that ask chefs and farmers to come forward with free labor and free product. Um, PCG, we stipend our chefs. If we do events, um, we don't ask for free shit. And I get really tired of people abusing our industry in that way. Like, Hey, help us raise money for save the whales or whatever. Like I know that the whales need to be saved, but you know, it shouldn't (laughs) be on the backs of chefs and farmers. Sorry. That's not cool. Um, so I do caution with events that if you're going to be going to an event that you understand where the money goes. Um, and how the proceeds are um, spent because it's your dollars. That, it's just like going to the grocery store. You're voting for something there when you patronize that event. You know, It's not just about going and having a good time. There needs to be some conscious effort there for the public when they're patronizing events and making sure that the proceeds are being spent on legitimate and important issues. So um, I don't go to a lot of events besides the culinary events that are involved in the guild, to be honest. I know that sounds very like one-dimensional, but I'm kind of busy, and so I don't... <laughs> I don't well, think... that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> you could go to an event probably every day with 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm at Charleston Food and Wine or Wine and Food starting Wednesday. So I'll be down there working from Wednesday to Sunday. So, you know, that's a, that's a great event. I mean, in terms of showcasing talent, we have a lot of chefs going down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm sort of managing a group of the chefs that are going down with the gumbo team. So, um, it's a great showcase of, of regional flavor and also regional talent. But yeah, outside of that, I don't really go to a lot of events if they're not PCG member events. Well, I want to talk about, and this is like speaks to what you're what you just mentioned. But um, one of the things we talked about at the Hello Sailor Buxton dinner was was you know the food costs, and people mm-hmm. complain a lot when they go out to eat about mm-hmm. the cost of their meal, and they don't understand what goes into it. And so you're doing um, a plate dinner, a costing dinner, costing dinner. I knew I'd get it wrong. A costing dinner yeah. um, with Piedmont Culinary Guild, but it was funny. So we were um, you asked for a to go box, and a lot of people were, are so shy about that. And at the dinner, and you were like, "Hey, like we're not going to waste food here. Like you know how expensive yeah. all this is." And like and I ate that food for lunch the next day. Oh, it was so delicious. Good. Yes, and I I just I loved it. I really like it opened up my mind too. And it's like a lot of times I am shy and weird about getting a box too. And it was like, yeah, why? Like we're not going to like this. You know, the labor, the animal at every point. Like this is would be so much waste. It's so disrespectful. Um, to throw food away. So talk about this costing dinner and like what the... So the dinner is going to be May 6th and we're still figuring out our location, but it'll be at one of the culinary schools. And the idea is that with each plate that's delivered, you're going to receive a costing card that shows you how that product, um, how much the farm... Uh, had to put into that product and how much they actually made selling that to the chef. And then you're going to see the chef's costing, which shows how much they spent in terms of like labor, overhead, everything to put this dish together and what the true margins are. And understanding that within that small 2% margin, which is what most chefs are running on, um, you know, at, at any point in the day that can get fucked up because somebody didn't show up for work or, you know, somebody dropped a pan of this on the floor or whatever. Like there's just so many variables, the human ingredient in all of this is just like really unpredictable. And so it affects the bottom line for every chef and every farm. Um, so the costing dinner is really about sharing that narrative with people and letting them know, letting them know that people that are doing real sourcing, local sourcing and, and working hard to find authentic ingredients that cost time and that costs money. And if you're not patronizing these local independent restaurants, that, that authentic experience will leave this market. There will not be space for it. If everyone goes to a corporate restaurant for their dinner out, instead of to an independent for their dinner out, uh, we're going to lose what we've been working to grow and build here. So that's what the narrative is of that dinner. So you're saying when someone has a top 50 list of restaurants and... It's painful when I see a lot of corporate restaurants <laughs> yeah. on there. You know, when I first came to Charlotte, there was, you know, I it was 14 years ago that we first arrived here and the options were very limited, you know, and, you know, I think about the godfathers of our culinary community, you know, the Jim Nobles, the Tim Grudy, you know, Bruce Moffat, you know, the chefs that were really doing... Uh, legitimate sourcing back then and sort of keeping local food on the map and really are responsible for the growth of it, to be honest with you, you know, because people wanted to sort of emulate that or copy that or, you know, whatever you want to call it, but they wanted to showcase those flavors too in a different way. And I think that they're really at the forefront of why we have the region that we do today. Um, but there are the options of restaurants back then were really those guys. And I remember one of the best meals I had in Charlotte, even to this day was at Sonoma, which was Tim Grudy's restaurant uptown in the bank of America building. And we went to dinner there one night and just the amount of local sourcing that he was doing was, is enormous. You know, now he's at fork and he has, 
um, his ramen soul restaurant. Um, and he's still doing the local sourcing. It's still part of his philosophy. I don't think that he gets enough play for that. It was really disappointing that Tim doesn't get more mentions and more attention for the work that he's done because he's broken his back to do it for a couple of decades now. Um, but you know, it's amazing to see how it's changed in Charlotte and how we've grown and gotten away from sort of that corporate feel, but it's still here and it's very much a threat as development continues because the prices of everything are going up real estate wise and developers want those big names in spaces because it creates stability for them. Um, so there's less risk associated with having them versus an independent restaurant coming in. But if we aren't careful, we're going to end up with a city full of corporate restaurants and we, w- we will lose what has made us special over the last decade um, and before. So my hope is that people understand that the restaurant that's the, the steak restaurant that's charging, you know, $30 for a steak is buying some, you know, cafe meat from God knows where versus, you know, a chef like Bruce Moffat, who's, you know, really doing his part to find authentic sources and making sure that his chicken is antibiotic free and making sure that, you know, chefs that really give a shit about what they're putting on a plate versus a corporate restaurant that's just putting out the cheapest product they can find, but charging the same amount as a Bruce Moffat or a, you know, so Bruce is running on a thinner margin or Tim is running on a thinner margin or Paul is running on a thinner margin and Greg Collier, you know, is buying local eggs. You know, that that's a huge expense compared to a restaurant that's doing breakfast with, you know, conventional eggs. So those, that hurts their margin, but they're willing to do it because they know it's the right thing to do as a chef. So we just have to patronize those guys. Otherwise they go away. Yeah. It's a soulless eating from a place like that as it is like a packaged meal. Like it doesn't, it, it's the foods coming from wherever, like the, everything's being shipped in, like all the freshness is gone and you right. know, it's not, it's not the same. Yeah. We do a lot of patronage. <laughs> we do. We actually don't, we don't really cook. So <laughs> we're, we're patronizing seven nights a week sometimes. But we do go to Chili's eight times a week. Is that bad? No. <laughs> I'm We're out bad people. Um. Well, the good news is there's a lot of options for you to patronize seven, you know. Yeah. Seven no, that, no, that's between, the best part know. about Charlotte. I mean, since, you know, I grew up here, I grew up in Fort Mill and then I moved back in 2012 and just since then so many options and you can, you can eat out every night yeah. at a local place and get something new. And, and not just brick great. and mortar. Now we have a lot of really quality food trucks too. Blue Barn Bistro yeah. sourcing local, you know, Chin at the Dumpling Ladies sourcing local. You know, we have a lot of um, uh, non brick and mortar establishments that are also doing the right thing by food, you know? So there's always, it's not just going, it's not about going to like a white tablecloth restaurant to eat local. I mean, that's sort of the dichotomy yeah. of local too, you know? It's like, oh, well, it's super expensive, whatever. Well, it's, it's like it's, picking between Starbucks and a not just coffee. Right. And right. The it's still going to be deal, the same like, cost practically. Yeah. You right, know, just better yeah. quality, better quality, and yeah. you're and you're patronizing a business that is also part people. of our local economy. You know, don't you're... help Har- Howard Schultz. Yeah. He's he going to reel at Donald Trump. We don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. I'm have to cut that out, aren't I? No, oh, well. you're allowed to keep that. Okay, cool. <laughs> We're allowed to say our opinions. <laughs> this is. This is our pod. Yeah, I can say what I want. That's right. Don't worry, we only have like seven people listening. Yeah, no, but just like my dad and a couple of his friends. Yeah, his dad, he, he's, he's downloaded it seven times, but he's a big Republican. Yeah, but he's so a Republican, so now it. he's not going to oh, listen anymore. God. Um, so <laughs> we just lost everyone. We do a recurring segment called The Best Thing I Ate This Week, you know, but we forgot to prep you on this. <laughs> so oh. Jason can go first, but it could be the best thing you ate or the best thing you drank. The best thing I ate. 
Um, but try to, you know, keep wait, it does it have to be like days. something that I ate out? Or? No, you no. can. Oh, okay. There's no rules. No rules. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay. It can I'm be ready. chilies. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, you go first then. Okay. Guest of honor. Um, so last night we made um, Shelly Egan um, Profit. So she is Profit Family Farms, which is a organic pasture-raised beef operation in um, Kings Mountain. Um, she does terrific beef, and we did her flap steak last night. Oh. And then I sauteed some mushrooms from Hiram that I got at Atherton Farmer's Market or South End Market. Um, and that was the most delicious thing I ate this week. Oh gosh, that sounds incredible. We're coming over for dinner. It was, cast, <laughs> it was a cast iron skillet steak and then the mushrooms with like a little bit of vermouth. Oh, it's delicious. I and love butter. cooking cast iron too. Mm. That's my favorite. That sounds awesome. Sorry, it was really yummy. Um, well, I didn't go out really. So like I've been working from home this week. And so that basically She's turned into, herself. I did not leave. Like I'm like the like kind of person where monk. I don't really like to leave the house. And so like once I don't leave, it's just a, I get in a real momentum with that. She's been <laughs> so, wearing this outfit for seven seriously. days. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't bathed. Totally get it. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I've just really been an indoor kid all week, but we, so we only went one place this week, so I don't really have a lot to choose from, but we finally checked out the Crunkleton. Oh, good. Have you been there yet? I have. Greg Balch is the chef. And so okay. I worked for Greg when he was the chef at Ratcliffe on the Green, which okay. was one of our flagship oh. farm to table restaurants. So I worked the line back in those days and he was oh, the wow. chef. And then when I went to Southminster, I hired him as my chef de cuisine. So yes. I've worked with Greg for a long time. Awesome. So he's doing really cool stuff at the Crunkleton. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. We heard a lot of mixed things before mm-hmm. going. I think a lot of people, um, you know, went early and then sort of skewered them, which yeah. of course, you know, it's not a good thing to do. So I, I feel like we didn't try enough for me to give like a full review. We always like to, we're trying to do this, you know, make it more legit where we go a few times before giving a Did review. Did you eat the chicken? Um, so we had chicken wings, which oh. was actually my favorite thing <laughs> I was going to say, but we didn't get like, we didn't get the chicken or like, I saw they had a whole chicken with the steak. vegetables. Oh, um, so delicious. Yeah. We, so that's, next time. we need to go next Tomorrow. time. We, we got the burger. Um, but I was going to say, I like the chicken wings. They were, yeah. they were really, really good. Um, and we had just excellent service. Our server was someone who we recognized from Seoul. She used to oh, nice. serve there. So oh, cool. she's like, uh, you know, she's yeah, we eat out so much. Like community. I recognize, I was like, Oh, you worked at, uh, this happens to him all the time. Yeah. He's got a really good memory. I was like, like, oh, I you worked you. at Fudo Buddha in 2014. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's like, yeah, Why are I you did. stalking me? Yeah, I sort of have, like, facial dysplasia. I don't remember people's faces. Yeah. People come up to me, and they're like, hey, Chris. And I'm like, oh, God. That's the worst moment. Hi. You're like, hi. You. Yeah. That's why you always bring your husband with you. So you can yes. be like, oh, this is my husband, uh, Chaim. Yeah. <laughs> and then they introduce their name. That's right. a good and point. you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's yeah. smart. Yeah, I still don't right. remember you, but at least I know be right. like, oh, I've met your husband too. And then you're like, no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I knew right. that. Uh, but yeah, I, I really liked it. I really liked, uh, you know, I just I had a really cool mezcal that I've never had before. I don't remember the name of it, but they had some bottles of liquor there that I had never seen. So I pretty much just yeah, was like scanning the amazing. wall. And I was like, I want to try that because I like the label and it was really good. And I don't remember what it was. So I had a really good glass of mezcal and the chicken wings were ex- excellent. So what about yeah, you? Mine Jason? was also from the Crunkleton. Okay. They had uh, mushroom and walnuts. Oh, yes. Mm. I that forgot about those. Isn't it surprising when yeah. you eat it? The it's orange sort of like cream. sweet. Yeah, it's, exactly. And you're like, you it think has, it's not going to be like good, but then you have it and you're like, it Jesus. It was so good. I almost couldn't even decide it. about it. That was a, yeah. that was exactly it. I'm like, at first I was like, I like this. And I was like, I'm not sure. But then I could not stop eating it. And I yeah. thought about it that night even. And yeah. it was a flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's a flavor I've just never, like the walnut sauce almost and whole walnuts like, I think that's Matt Carnavelli's dish I can't remember if Greg made that or not I think that's Matt's dish 
who's working there also. Matt's a very talented chef as well. Matt. Yeah. That's very tasty. Yeah. Agreed. And we just had so that with the chicken. Flavor. Just so you know. Unique flavor very that unique. you can't. Yeah, we need to get the chicken. I you need to have the chicken. That. Go back and have the chicken with the roasted vegetables and the mushrooms together. Oh, amazing. We, we you know Magical. we need to go back not on a Saturday, but honestly, even for a Saturday, it wasn't like it wasn't it was crowded, but we only waited like forty five minutes. So if anyone's ever afraid like I'm always afraid to go to a new restaurant on a Saturday, but then mm-hmm. usually once I do it, it's fine. It's not so bad. Yeah. You have a drink and then your table's ready. Like right. I was I don't know, I was nervous, but it okay, was let fun. me ask you one other question before we go. What was your favorite thing at the Hello Sailor Butson Hall dinner? Oh, great question. Damn. Um, I would say the pate en croute was... Oh, oh. not yeah. what I would have expected you to say. I feel like that didn't get enough play because there was so much food and that kind of came out in the middle. It was, like, but if you like really looked at it, it was beautiful and oh, yeah. perfectly done. I mean, Greg Deal's a badass, you know what I mean? Like, And he knows it. <laughs> Hi, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, love you, Greg. <laughs> yeah, love you. Love you. Um, that was good, though. That was excellent. It was really, really well done and just perfect. Sometimes you can have that and it's like salty or the texture's mm-hmm. weird, you know? Or it's hard yeah. on the crust. Yeah. Like a little overdone. He just nailed yeah. it. He nailed it. It was delicious. It was the best bite of food I had all night. All It was all good, by the way. Yes. I don't want to yeah. like downplay anything there because everything that we had was super great. yummy. And there was so much of it. So much of it. <laughs> so much of it. But that was definitely the standout for me. I was nervous there Beautiful. wouldn't be enough because it was community style. I always right. get like yeah. this hungry girl inside of me is like, how, yeah. will, how will we eat? But there was It was the thing I thought plenty. about later that night that I was like, man, I wish I would have had a little bit more of that to be eating right now. Yeah, I wish pickles. I would have. Now that you're saying it, I, yeah, with some nice cornichons. Yeah. I <sighs> wish I had that right now too. So yummy. Cornichon. 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 <laughs> All right. Where can we find you? Tell us where yes, we can find interwebs. you on the interwebs. On the interwebs. Um, so PiedmontCulinaryGuild.com is our website. Um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, PCG underscore Charlotte on Instagram. Um, hashtag us, all ships rise and uh, PCG Charlotte or Tastemaker CLT. And I think that's it. I mean, we'll put all this on our little page for yes. this episode. Yes. In on case the you blog. can't remember all that. Thank you so much for Wait, what's your on. individual Instagram? Oh, that's a good one too. Uh, KLR. Yeah. It's like, well, my initials are, are KLR, which is killer. So it's oh, yes. <laughs> killer homegrown. Oh, I didn't even know. Killer homegrown. That's awesome. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. It's a really good account too. So follow her there as well. Thanks, Thanks for spending your Sunday with us. I know you're very busy and you're headed to Winston-Salem, Winston-Salem right now. Yes. So we are so happy that we got a little bit of time with you today. Well, thanks so, for having me. This was yes. really fun. Thank you so much. All right. Everyone have a good week. We'll have another guest next week. I think we already said it. We did. What was her name? Kristen Wilde. There we go. <laughs> Short-term memory loss. killer homegrown.